Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there's much in this um, desire that you have for us to have healthy relationships. It's a matter of life and death, really, that you kept open to us, Lord, even when we were sinful. You offered us the gift of eternal life, and I pray that that gift would be flowing freely this morning as we hear your word. Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day. I have to get that out there. Um, seems odd to me that the Jewish people of all people didn't have somewhere in the book of Leviticus the Feast of Mothers or something like that. Um, you'd think that would have been covered somewhere. Certainly it's a good thing that Hallmark is made up for the air and um, we have this really important celebration now and it is good to celebrate our moms. I'll be sharing a little bit more about that as we go forward. But um, uh, what I want us to kind of engage with today is this idea of relational skills. I have to admit, it's, it's not my favorite phrase, simply because it just sounds kind of like something you sprinkle on the top of what you're already doing. So, you know, hey, you know, we know there's not much going on in the summer. If you've got a little free time, come join us for, you know, some sessions on relational skills. You know, like, uh, you know, learn how to, you know, uh, tie knots or something. And, but really, when you think of it, friends, that relational skills are a matter of life and death. There's a sense of urgency that, that, that causes us to want to bring to light of Christ this next series of engaging with God for growth. Because without relationship, there's death. I mean, the source of everything that's wrong in the world is a broken relationship. And it's right relationship that restores everything. And God's capacity to stay present to us when we're sinful is the reason why we have any hope at all. And God is calling us to be ambassadors for Christ in the same way that he was an ambassador for us. Jesus came as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven to open up for us the door to eternal life. And he's saying to us, now I want you to do the same thing. I want you to create a situation and an environment in in your relationships where I am allowed to work because of your posture of openness. And that is so hard to do and, and it's at the root of so much of our suffering that part of our passion to bring this into our congregation through engaging with God for growth is to learn a little bit more about the complexity and also the solution to the challenge of developing mature relationships. We suffer terribly when our relationships are broken and we can experience, on the other hand, the most profound joy and healing when our relationships are restored. And in fact, almost the very definition of joy is something that we've come to understand is securely attached relationship. That's the source of joy. The source of joy is not money or fame or power or all the other illusions. The source of joy is actually being in 
a secure, a secure relationship with somebody who loves you and is glad to be with you, which is virtually a definition of the name of Christ, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. God being glad to be with us. God being glad to be with us even when we're not very nice to be around. So on the one hand, relationships can be very hard. They can be very messy. So much in a relationship really is actually out of our control. That may come as a surprise for us. You know, for, for the, to those of us who are convinced that actually we can control the other person, we keep being reminded that we can't. Um, on the one hand, things don't always work out very well in relationships, even when we really try. On the other hand, it's God's will that we enjoy rich relationship with him and with others. What is it that we say now in our new uh, Anglican Church North American liturgy? We read the two great commandments. We're to love the Lord our God and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet we know that loving God, loving neighbor, let alone loving ourselves isn't so simple. How can we do this? How can we love God? How can we love others, love ourselves? Well, certainly one way of answering that question is certainly not on our own strength. I mean, you hardly even have to ask the question or paint the picture before you realize this isn't about our own strength. Here's the key point I want to make this morning. When bad things happen in our relationships, and they often do, we can trust God to help us recover. And we can even help others trust God too. It's that simple. And that complicated. <laughs> when bad things happen to our relationships, God is trustworthy. He has a plan, a will to love, and he can help us help others to trust in him too. I want to spend some time looking this morning at the story of Adam and Eve, which uh, for those of you that were able to meet this week, um, I trust you'll, you'll know that as many times as you come to that story, you'll find it just richer and richer and richer. It's an endless source of amazing insight and conversation. We certainly experienced in that in our group. Um, Adam and Eve. I, I want to look particularly at, I don't want to ask the question why they sin. That's another series of <laughs> sermons. I just want to, I want us to look at what happens when they sin. I want us to look at what, what they do and what God does. It's a terrible, terrible thing that happens. I mean, it's even really hard to put into words. You know, the, the impact of Adam and Eve's sin. Paul, the apostle, will sum it up this way. Since by one man sin entered the world. So, I mean, one man. I mean, imagine bearing that burden, you know. Sin enters the world. In another place, the apostle Paul will say, by that one man, death enters the world. So like the two worst things you can possibly imagine, and they're related, are sin and death. The consequences are high. You can't have a worse situation. It's hard to imagine a more horrible thing than the breaking of the bond between God and humankind. That's the tragedy of it. The breaking of the bond between God and humankind for the very first time when there was so much there to enjoy and so much to lose. And, and so we can see very interestingly if we compare and contrast Adam and Eve's response to this crisis, this bad thing, and God's response. 
One of my favorite paintings, well, favorite, I don't know, it's the most arresting to me, uh, of, of the, there are a lot of paintings on Adam and Eve um, throughout church history. Um, there's a guy in the early 1400s named Masaccio. He has a painting called The Expulsion of the Garden of Eden. And it's really hard to look at because it's Adam and Eve, but it gives such a good picture of what sin is all about. Adam and Eve are turned, and their whole physical posture is like Adam has covered his face and he's looking down. And Eve is next to him, but, but not really with him. And if you can, and her, there is such a look of horror on her face. It's just absolute primal horror. And that is such a picture of sin. The, uh, the church came up with kind of an interesting Latin phrase for this over time, incurvatus in se. Can you hear the word curve in there? Curved in upon yourself. Sin is a total rending of relational joy. We, we sometimes will, in our, in our groups over time, maybe you're familiar with this, our picture of relational joy is often a baby looking into a mother, mother's eyes, and the mother's eyes looking into the baby's eyes. So the heart of Mother's Day is that right there. It's a picture that you just can't get over. You know, there's no end to delighting in the picture, well, and the experience of either being a mother with a child or being with a mother with a child who's looking into that baby's eyes and you can see that connection and that bond. It's the strongest bond there is practically. And sin is the exact opposite of that. It's the rending and the breaking of the bond of relationship and the picture of that is the opposite. It's the turning in or the curving in on yourself. It's the self-infatuation. It's the self-focus. It's the pain of isolation. And all of the, all of the words that would convey the, the baby-mother bond are joy and delight and, and love and, 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 and positive warmth and feeling. That's all the opposite in the being turned on yourself where you feel shame and fear and anger and disappointment and failure. There's no fruitfulness in being curved in on yourself. And you note what happens right away uh, in the story of Adam and Eve is the, is the role that deception plays, both as the cause for their sin, but even afterwards, their response when God addresses them is to lie. And that's what always happens. When we're curved in on ourselves, it's just an endless chain of self-deceit that we engage in. We lie about ourselves, we lie to ourselves, we, we lie about ourselves to other people. It's a terrible, horrible predicament. That's why there's no escape from it on our own. Adam and Eve had, Adam and Eve have, have, had no solution. They had no solution. There was just simply crisis, brokenness, separation, confusion, and that just plays itself out, you know, and their kids and their kids' kids. It's just not a good, fruitful way to be. God is exactly opposite. Now, this, this is an interesting picture in a scenario to me because we think that, okay, God's angry, right? He curses them. And so, but that, there's, there's way more subtlety to what's going on in God's response than just that he got angry and he kicked them out of the pool, right? That's a, not a good way of reading God's response, and I think we'll see that pretty clearly and pretty easily. First of all, God is expectant. God knows what happened, but what does he do? He does what he always does, which I love about God. 
God had already started walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the garden. He had that precedent of fellowship with them. And what does he do today? He does the same thing. He goes to the place of meeting with expectancy. Um, you know, the whole Garden of Eden is a picture of God's stewardship and care for relationship. I, I, you know, when I reflect on my childhood, I don't remember always a whole lot about specific conversations with my mom. Um, I mean, I can if I try hard enough, but I'll tell you what I think of automatically and very quickly. And first, is the kind of home she created for us. And it's the texture of that home that created a sense of belonging. The home was very intentional in my mom's world. She, she, she was good at crafts. She is good at crafts. My mom is a quilter, for example. She makes beautiful quilts. And she made them for our home and she made them for each one of our, us as children. We all, all have our own quilt for my mom and my, uh, my kids too. She uh, was very good with color. So when you would pull up to my house and you would see through the front windows, like I, what I'm thinking now is as I'm older, like when I was coming home from college, for example, I hadn't seen the house for a while, it just would glow. I could see the, the, the wood and, and the, the, the textures and the colors of my living room were, were golden and orange and, 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 and rusty red and, and it, it would just glow like a, like a candle. And, uh, you know, I, I always knew that when I went in there, there would, be, there would already have been care given to the home. My mom would have already been cooking. And, and, uh, and it would have been something wonderful. What, everything my mom cooked was wonderful. It was very easy to please that way. <laughs> I liked anything that we had, practically, uh, except for turkey soup. Um, but other than that, it was all good. And, and, the, and, and my mom had a, a miraculous way of folding sheets. I, I've tried it. If you have ever fitted a folded sheet, it, it's not possible, except somehow my mom could do that. Um, huh? But, uh, yeah, thank you for translating my... <laughs> my kids do this automatically. I forget it. I'm not going to try to say that again. You get the idea. Um, there was a texture in our home that communicated more powerfully than words ever could, that this is the place where you come to recenter yourself. So I have a lot of memories of arguments that I had with my brothers and arguments I had with my friends and tension that I had. I mean, I can remember all that. But what I remember most importantly is that when I went back home, there was a, a reintegrating back into the truth of who I was and who everybody else was. There was something that I came back to which was relational joy. And my mom had set up the home as a place of relational interaction. We were happy, we were communicative, we ate at the table together, we, we didn't just resort to our own spaces, we were together. And that's where I could process the things in my life and that's kind of like the Garden of Eden. It was there to be the place where Adam and Eve, if they had chosen, could have met the challenge of this deceptive snake and his lies. And in fact, God does not disrupt the relationship to the point of no return. It's a wrong interpretation of Genesis 3 to think that God just kicked them out of the pool as punishment. God was actually reconfiguring the environment for their salvation. 
Things had to change. And Adam and Eve would have deserved it if they had just simply died. You and I deserve the same treatment. This isn't a question of whether or not we are special to God or whether we're loved. I'm just saying based on pure uh, um, deserving of something, we're not, our grade, our scorecard, our report card isn't all that great. We deserve to fail. That wasn't what God was thinking. What God was thinking about is how do I Well, I mean, not that he was confused by this. God took the initiative to reorder the environment so that the possibility of salvation would triumph. That's what was happening there. God's relational circuits, if we could use a little bit of our internal jargon here, (laughs) never closed. They never closed. God looked at them He spoke to them. He walked to where they were. He didn't say, I want you to come and see me in my office in 30 minutes. (laughs) He went to where they were, right to their place of meeting. He did not cave into the deceit. He would not let deceit have its way. Imagine that. I mean, we look at the, at the impact of sin, the curse of death, and the pain of childbirth. And, the, and the, uh, the, the removal from the garden is some kind of a, uh, just a sheer punishment. But, but God was establishing truth. He was establishing justice. He was restoring order to the chaos of the sin. I mean, the enemy had no room to move. Literally, he was put on his belly. He had no corner. In fact, the, the, uh, our Savior Jesus would step on his head in his defeat. So it's not just simply that God was punishing Adam and Eve. He was restoring what could have been lost had God just simply been a, a vindictive and angry and capricious God. If he had just simply caved into his, what, you know, what we call around here, his negative emotions. I'm angry. I'm, you know, really ticked off. And I'm, I'm going to vent my frustration. You know, I'm ashamed of, you, you know, of myself. And you. you know, he didn't cave into any of that. He establishes exactly what needed to be established. You can pick that up, that's right. <laughs> Don't be afraid. That's why, that's why you can see what was at stake. All of the possibilities of salvation are established right there. All of the expectation of hope is established right there. Even God's gentle nature comes through in the sense that he made for them garments to cover their shame. He even attended to that, which is an amazing thing when you think about the creator of the universe, kind of, I don't know how to depict it. I don't know if I've even seen a picture of it ever. Getting down on his hands and knees, you know, sewing something together, covering his children from their own shame and staying with them in the process, knowing even then what it would cost him to reconcile the relationship and having absolute confidence in the outcome. That's a God worthy of worship. That's a God that's dependable, that's trustworthy. Uh, Again, you know, 
we're using the phrase relational skill. I wish there was something more robust to describe what's in, how important this is. God sets the precedent for relational maturity by not caving into deceit, by not caving into despair, by not just vetting his anger, by taking care of his people, even when it hurt. This is difficult for Adam and Eve. God didn't just wave a magic wand and pretend it didn't matter. That also would have been capitulation to deceit. He would have just not accomplished anything that way. Adam and Eve respond so differently. They, they respond in such brokenness. Their relational capacity has caved in on itself. They have none. They're now collaborators in deceit. That's not exactly relational maturity, right? They're now playing a game together, and yet God keeps that door open. God is absolutely dependable when you are at your worst. Adam and Eve were at their worst. We were talking about the Apostle Peter today. At his worst, God is at his best. Paul says it this way, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter five, verse eight, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinful, Christ died for us. Or here's how the Apostle John puts it in his words, in his letter, first letter of John. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. So you can see that God is dependable when we're at our worst, he's at his best, his relational best. So as we are engaging with God for growth and starting down this journey or continuing this journey, I wanna just kind of challenge us with a couple of things and acknowledge a couple of things. First of all, I just wanna acknowledge this isn't easy. Relationships aren't easy. I struggle with this. I struggle even having prepared this because I can think of a lot of relationships in my life that aren't reconciled. And I wish I could just stand up here and say, let me tell you, uh, I, gosh, there's so many to choose from. I, I, you know, so many reconciled relationships. I struggle in this area too. Not, not only with my own behavior, but even when other people hurt me too. And I wonder, where's the power of God in it? But this is something that my wife encouraged me in, in this morning, and I, I believe it's absolutely true. The confidence does not come from us or from the other people. It comes from God. And, and this is a word that I, I think I, I want to impress upon us, too. It takes time. We're not done yet. The gospel of Jesus Christ did not come right to Adam and Eve right then and there. It took thousands of years, not because God is somehow taking his foot off the gas pedal, but because it just takes that long to impart to people the knowledge of who God is and what he's doing. We must be confident. It's the confidence in God that allows us to take a step back for a second and say, okay, I'm not here to solve problems. I'm here right now just to discern and pray. And that's what I want to encourage us in this morning. Not to figure it out, First of all, to trust, very relational word, okay? To trust God that when we're at our worst, he's at his best. And also now to just give us a little bit of space to hear this application. Engaging with God for growth 
is such a key priority because so much as is at stake in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. We must grow in learning how to be connected to God and to each other relationally. It's not optional, it's essential. A mature relationship with God and with each other is our mission. Here's the way that Paul says it in the second letter to the Corinthians chapter five, one of my favorite verses with respect to mission. Christ has reconciled us to God. You know what reconcile means? It means to repair the relationship. It was broken and now it's been fixed. Not just whitewashed, but actually fixed. That's what reconcile means. Christ has reconciled to us to God. He's forgiven us. Okay, he's, he's made relationship possible. And Christ has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. In the same way that Christ went around fixing broken relationships, we are called to fix broken relationships. Christ has reconciled us to God and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. God was fixing relationships in the world and he's entrusted to us the same responsibility to fix relationships. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors of Christ. Okay, so just in closing here, I wanna give us a couple of challenges here. First of all, I want us to discern. Discernment's not an easy thing. I often don't know how I feel, for example. If you ask me, hey, how do you feel? I, I, don't, I don't know sometimes. It takes me a while to figure out. I can do this. You know, I am happy. No, you know, <laughs> um, it takes me a while sometimes to figure out what's bugging me. Oftentimes we're walking around with our, our relational circuits just turned off but we don't know why. I, I mean, I remember in a moment of insight, I, I, was, I, I was dutifully going about my business, you know, trying my best to stay focused and engaged, but I really wasn't. And it occurred to me that there was a conversation I had with somebody three days prior that really bothered me. And because of some of the work we've been doing in our engaged groups, I'm learning a little bit better how to listen to this, and I was able to acknowledge that this thing bothered me. I was able to pray about that. Normally, I would have never even known. I don't even remember where I was three days ago. Like, filling out my expense reports is awful because I'm like, what, what was I doing in Philadelphia last week? I don't, I don't even remember. What. And so learning to discern what's going on inside is really important for us to do that, to learn how to do that. That's what we've been talking about in our engage groups. We have to ask questions like, how do I feel physically? Am I tense? You know, am I kind of ready to be angry? Do I think about feelings of anger? Do I think about, you know, yelling at somebody? Okay, discernment. Let me just kind of focus on this <coughs> briefly and then, and then I'll close. First of all, I want us to discern this question. How's our trust in God? Are we trusting God? Do we trust him to forgive our sin or we just can't get past that one? I, I just don't really believe it. It's okay to admit that. We might know in our heads that we're forgiven but we might not really believe it. 
do we trust him that he will be with us in this life all the time? Or do we just think of him as kind of once in a while showing up but never at the right time? Do we love him? Is that a word that we use comfortably? Oh, I, I just love God and I mean it. Or do we say, ah, it's just a little, you know, I don't know, I don't know about that. Do we worship him? These are intimate words, love and worship. Can we just say, oh, I, I just, I worship you. You inspire me. It's okay to say, I don't know. That's why I'm asking these questions. Do we hear his voice? Are we, like Adam and Eve, hiding? One of the first sins, the sin of hiding. Are we hiding from God, afraid, ashamed, not quite telling the truth? You know, these are delicate areas, and that's why I want us to just give ourselves some space and time to discern. How's our trust in God? How would we answer some of those questions? These are relational things. They help us understand how much of the gospel we've been able to appropriate. Your belief in this doesn't need to be perfect. It's not what saves you. Christ saves you. And he's inviting you to be okay with the fact that we hardly know. What, when, when I say I believe that Jesus is saving from my sins, I hardly even know the magnitude of that. It's gonna take me an eternity, really, to uncover all that Christ has done for me. It's okay for me to explore that a little bit. How much of the gospel have we appropriated? How much have our hearts been able to take in? You know, our hearts might be three sizes too small, like the Grinch. He's gonna open it up a little bit. Discernment in these areas can help expose the area where God wants to bring greater depth of experience, greater forgiveness, greater healing. Okay, so one question of discernment is, how's your trust in God? The second discernment question is, how are your relationships? Here are the kind of questions I'm asking myself. What relationships have hurt us? What relationships uh, in what relationships have I caused hurt? What relationships just simply trouble me? That's just that easy question. You know, oh right, you know. Um, are we troubled by certain relationships, even ones that are long past, but that still have present power? Are we overwhelmed by certain kinds of relationships? We want something to get better, but we're just overwhelmed by it. Are we bringing negative emotions into a relationship, such as anger or criticism or lust or doubt? These are discernment questions about our relationships. You know, one discernment question is, how's our trust with God? Another question is, what relationships are really causing us angst? And so, as we discern that, the second thing I want us to do is to pray. Don't try to solve the problem because some relationships can't be fixed. It's just not in this life or not right now. That's why this isn't a problem-solving routine. It's a discernment routine. Take the thing that you just can't get over. You know, sometimes relationships are painful and you did your best and you tried to reconcile and that was a previous phase in your life and it's time to move on. There are other relationships that just linger in your heart as a, you still tragic somehow. This isn't about problem solving, it's about praying. Pray specifically for God's grace in the areas where you struggle. Ask for his help and listen for his response. Lord, I'm thinking about this relationship with Bob. I I'm confused by it. I don't know if I hurt him or he hurt me or both. 
I'm overwhelmed at the thought of even calling him. I don't know if I should. It's okay to have that kind of question and say, okay, I'm asking for your help, Lord. Will you help me know what to do in this situation? We don't have to have all the answers, but when we pray by ourselves and with other people, we stay connected relationally. And here's my closing point. When we do this, do you know what we allow to happen? We allow God to work. We're being ambassadors. See, the thing is, our responsibility as followers of Christ isn't to solve all the problems. It's to create the environment the way that my mom did in our home for me. When we're being ambassadors of Christ with our relational skills open, we're not trying to say, oh, therefore I have to solve the problem. That's not what relationally open means. It doesn't mean that I have to even engage with a person. It doesn't mean I even have to talk to a person. It means with respect to the integrity of that relationship, I am saying, God, you do your work in and through me in the way that you direct. Not even Jesus solved all the relationship problems. Many people rejected him. Many people still do reject him. This isn't about fixing things and solving things. It's about being an ambassador for the love and power of God to let it have its way in and through you maturely and with discernment. That's the vision and that's the goal and that's what we're learning about as a church. I, I wanna leave you with uh, the example of Jesus with the thieves on the cross. This is an example of the power of open openness even at the hardest time. I, I can't even begin to describe I wouldn't even try the pain and, and, and despair of crucifixion. It was the worst, probably has been the worst execution technique ever invented by human beings. It was intentionally so. It's meant to break your bones and your spirit. And Jesus, who himself was at that moment taking on the sin of the world, has the capacity to sit between these two thieves and stay open. The same way that God was back with Adam and Eve, even in this pain and malaise. He stays open. And what happens? Well, for the one thief, nothing. All right, th th that's why I'm saying this isn't about solving problems. Jesus didn't have a technique of converting either of these men. All right, because one of them was a bitter, cynical person, and he died bitter and cynical. All right, Jesus could not fix that, or did not, or like I said, I don't want to get into another sermon on that one. But it did not work. It being, this, in other words, that, you know, this isn't about solving problems. It's about being relationally open. And what it did is for the man who was contrite, he was ushered into, into glory that day. That's powerful. Jesus' openness allowed a man who was in execution to find a pathway to glory, that's very powerful. You see the power of Jesus, the ambassador of the kingdom, staying literally open to the power of God to do miracles up until the very end. That's what God is calling us to do, not to fix, not to solve, not to have the end in mind before the beginning, 
but to simply stand there in a posture of being an ambassador of the same love that we're experiencing from him, letting it do its work in that difficult place. I find it scary. There are relationships I don't want to engage with. I don't know how to engage with. I don't have any answers. They cause me pain. I'm overwhelmed. And, and I'm, you know, wanting to also listen to my own words and, and rely on Christ and you in, in our groups together as I learn how to do this, to, to not be afraid to say, Lord, this thing frightens me so much that I don't even want to pray about it. But I'm going to. I'm going to pray about it and see how you might do something. That's what it means to be an ambassador to Jesus Christ. When bad things happen, when bad relationships happen, God can be depended on to be with us in all of its yuckiness. And believe it or not, he can, he can fill you with the power of the Holy Ghost to do exactly the same thing. And that's what we're praying for together. Amen.